If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. And thanks for being with us today. We are thrilled that you are along with us this afternoon for what can only be described in the most reserved of terms as a jam-packed show stravaganza. There, there simply is, there is no word already created in the English language to fully encapsulate what a show we have for you today. Maybe we should ask you to come up with one for us. I don't know that show stravaganza fully covers it. If you can come up with better than show stravaganza, hit me up with it on text, 905-645-3221. But that's what we got today. We have got an absolute rocking three hours of talk radio and news and information and fun and stuff Basically, what I'm saying is, um, I don't know what your plans are this afternoon, but a wise man or a wise woman would cancel all of them and simply sit by the radio for the next two hours and 50 minutes. That would be that would be the wise thing to do. You have a crucial, critical doctor's appointment for which you've waited months to get. Cancel it. This will be better. No, actually, don't do that. That, that, that would be the one exception. Go to the doctor's appointment. But you have a banker's appointment, cancel the bank. You go into a movie, I don't know who goes to a movie at 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, but skip it. I'm telling you, you're going to want to be here. Let me tell you why. Uh, we're going to be chatting about the Claremont Access and uh, why it is now closed and how – I was going to say why the city is eroding. That was almost a Freudian slip. So, so, some, might, some might suggest so, uh, but a part of the city – the, the wall is eroding. I, I don't know. The whole city is eroding, but uh, we'll get to that one this hour. We're going to be chatting about a pipeline that is possibly being built right in Hamilton. You know, all those talks about pipelines in Alaska and Yukon and the States and Quebec and everywhere else. No, no, right here, running down the east end of Hamilton, 14 kilometers long. We'll tell you all about that one. Uh, the, uh, the meeting in Oakville and the situation with the teacher and the things you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that's not going anywhere good, it doesn't seem. That whole discussion, we'll be chatting about that. There was a meeting last night that seemed to do little more than antagonize everyone, even more than they were already antagonized, which is really saying something. It is amazing to me that you could take this issue and turn it into something not only that has made every single person upset in this story, but also has now become a worldwide news event. When you could have dealt with this probably in a way that dealt with it quickly and – but now, now, I mean, this – is there a school board in the free world that is being seen as more of a mess up than this one right now with this situation? I don't know. We'll get to that one. Uh, next hour, uh, healthcare changes. How is that going to – how are those changes going to affect you if there's more private clinics and other things like that? We'll get to that. Um this one, man, uh, speaking of things not going particularly well, if you are Justin Trudeau, I'm not sure this China story about the China's involvement in our election is getting a whole lot better. Now that we've heard, who was it, the head of CSIS or something saying, oh, yeah, when the prime minister said that he had not been briefed on this. No, no, he had been briefed. And now the government saying we're giving back a donation. This is this seems to be not going in a positive way for the prime minister and his party. We'll get into that one later next hour. The NHL trade deadline still not here. 
and yet still trades coming out the wherever. We'll talk about that one. Uh, a ship has been found at the bottom of Lake Huron. Interesting, interesting story behind that. We'll get into that one. Uh, here's one that will resonate with you, I'm sure. Council, City Council here in Hamilton talking about a significant, significant tax hike this year. Vastly more, like more than double what we've seen any year for many, 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 many years. And they're chalking it up to all kinds of things from provincial downloading to inflation. Is that all that's driving this rate hike? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. But I can tell you, and we're going to be talking to one of them, not all councillors are on board with just signing off on a 6.7 or 6.8% tax increase. There are those who are saying, no, we can find ways to do much better. We'll be talking to one of them uh, in the show today. Uh, lots of other things to get to as well. I mean, it is a jam, jam, jam-packed show. <laughs> The downbound lanes, as you've been hearing on the news and in traffic reports, the downbound lanes of the Claremont Access here in Hamilton have been closed until further notice because of urgent erosion concerns. There is apparently some buckling or some some signs that the protective walls, the retaining walls there, if you know the area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, well, when it's open, drive by and you can see. But uh, the retaining walls that hold the, the side of the hill in place, um, not as they should be. So the question is, what is going on? Why is this happening? When will this be done? All those kinds of questions. Uh, to join us, Jackie Kennedy, the Director of Engineering Services with the city who joins us now. Jackie, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, why don't you, okay, can you tell us what is the issue right now? Because there's been a number of issues before, but what's going on right now that they've had to close the road? So the steel plates that you're talking about are um, are actually not structural. They are there to prevent some of the erosion. Um, and what we've been doing is having them inspected regularly to observe any changes that might take place. Um, and we've been planning to remove those steel-facing walls for some time now and are, in fact, getting close to when we had planned to to remove those off of the Claremont access Um during one of the routine inspections on Monday, our consultant, Stantec, uh, noticed a change in one of the locations where, as you described it, there was some buckling or a bowing out of an area um, that looked different than it had in their previous inspection a few weeks earlier. Um, so that's an indication of a change and could be a cause for uh, concern and that there may be a, a failure coming. We don't know what that failure would exactly look like. And so out of an abundance of caution, we've closed those downbound lanes to avoid any risk to the public driving along close to that. When, when you say when you say that they, that there's a plan to remove those, I, I assume there would be a plan then to put something else up in their place, correct? Would it like the same things or some other method? When the walls come off, the consultants that we've got that are experts in this area will have a closer look at it and see what's behind the walls and then from that point decide what the appropriate actions are. So we won't actually know until we get the walls off to be able to determine what the appropriate next steps are. These walls, and I'm reading this in the story, and I knew they've been up there for a while, but I'm reading the spec right now. They've been up there since 1968 or 1970. These, the, I don't know what a lifespan of something like this would be, but that I would think would have to be, uh, that's a long time for those to be in place. It does sound like a long time. We did see a failure on a similar section uh, about 10 years ago, I gather. Um, that's the information that I've got. In 2017, some additional removals were done by the city of Hamilton. 
Um, we've been monitoring them regularly since the 2012 failure, failure as well and, and planning about how to move forward and remove them and what the right future is for, uh, for this area of the escarpment. And that's one of the, you raise a good thing because in 2012, there was a, a failure and there was some people call it a landslide or whatever. I mean, there was some rocks that came down. And at that time, some people said it's time to fix this. And they were, the wall, I guess, was put back in place, but the entire thing wasn't redone. Should it have been done then? Is when, when the first failures begin to happen, is that the time to redo everything? That's a good question. Um, I think we've been working on um, inspecting them and keeping an eye on them since then. As I said, some sections were removed in 2017. My understanding is that those that were removed then were done based on observations at that time. Uh, since then, we've had Stantec engaged and we're working towards the next level of removal. So what you'll see is most of the wall from uh, a little bit upwards from where the bridge crosses over the Claremont um, up towards the, the top end of the, the road. Um, the wall, the, the steel walls will be removed. It sort of um, hugs the wall up to the north and then it sort of takes a step up as, as the height increases and, and all of that will be coming down. It's about 600 meters of the steel walls that we'll be removing. There are, I assume there are other options. Um, and and I, I only say I assume this because if you drive on the 403 up Hamilton Mountain, there are, you know, heavy, heavy duty fences with heavy metal posts away from the wall a little bit that if there was a rock, a boulder that fell down, it would catch it before it went onto the road. I just wonder if that kind of thing could work here, even if it was changed, because the difference is, in this case, on the Claremont access, the wall is so much closer to the road. Um, that's a good question. The approach that we have been taking to date has been based on the installations, as you noted, from um, the 1960s, uh, inspections to observe, note any changes, take actions as needed. We're progressing towards the next stage here where we've got most of the uh, steel facing walls removed. And then we'll have um, consultants looking at it to determine what we do next. Uh, just before I let you go, and I appreciate you taking the time today, do we have any idea about a time frame for this? Or is this really wide open because we don't yet know what's really going on? Um, in terms, we know that we've got plans in place to remove the walls this year already. I'm speaking of um, right now because the Claremont access is closed. So is this a couple days just oh. to see, or is this going to be longer because we don't necessarily know exactly what we're facing? Or, I mean, does this look like a long-term thing or a short-term thing, or do we have any idea at this point? So it looks like, so the, um, the concern was raised on Monday. Uh, actions were taken yesterday quite promptly to close the Claremont so we could uh, figure out exactly what to do and to gauge the risk more closely. Um, my team has been working with Stantec um, since then to look at what our options are to get the road open as quickly as we can, as long as it's safe. So we are looking at options for traffic flow, whether that means um, 
the detour that they've got in place now, or perhaps converting the upwards lanes into a one up and one down lane if the closure is going to be going on for very long. So we're working, my team in engineering is working closely with Stantec to get advice on what our options are technically. And we're working closely with the transportation operations group in terms of how to best manage the traffic. Uh, Jackie Kennedy, Director of Engineering Services for the city. Jackie, thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The city of Hamilton is, um, well, there's a plan that has been proposed for the city that will work with ArcelorMittal DeFasco's transition to more green steelmaking, and that requires a pipeline to run a 14-kilometer pipeline to run to carry natural gas across Hamilton, per mostly along Centennial Parkway. I don't know how this is going to play with people, uh, with environmentalists, with others, but certainly there are some public consultations this afternoon that will be available. I want to bring in Murray Costello from Enbridge, who is behind this. Murray, how are you today? Very good, Scott. Very good. Thank you for having me uh, join your call. I well, really appreciate you doing this because, as I say, uh, th- the idea of getting rid of more coal to something cleaner on its face would seem to be something that I would think a lot of people who are environmentalists or others would say, hey, this is a good thing. And yet we know that for some people, just the word pipeline is a four letter word. So so how how is this going to play, do you think, with people in town? So I think it's really important to remember that um, that ArcelorMittal DeFasco is, is really starting out on a multi-phase plan to achieve uh, net zero emissions in steelmaking, right? So, um, and if we look at the current coal making, uh, the coal-fired steelmaking operations, um, and us uh, enabling, and so really the, the the use of natural gas is really going to enable a sixty percent reduction in uh, CO two emissions in this first phase. So I think that's really important just to remember. And if you take that, if you take a look, I think it's important to note that this will contribute to roughly 55% of Hamilton's 2030 goal to, to reduce emissions by 50%. Wow, okay. So very significant, uh, very significant project that uh, that they are undertaking. Um, this project uh, does, um, t- to go through this first phase, does require incremental use of natural gas. How would this what what would this pipeline look like? We have seen pictures, of course, of pipelines and they are above ground. There are some, I guess, that are below. What what would this look like in the city? So for us, and, and you would talk correctly, is that if you would go to uh, Rymel Road, so we look at Rymel Road and uh, Centennial, and if you go, uh, if you take a look at it, we would try to, our current um, preferred alternative is to run within the road allowance. So within that road allowance, uh, typically behind the curb, uh, it would be a pipeline that would be constructed going all the way down to, coming all the way down the escarpment to Barton Street. And then if you go on Barton uh, across to Kenilworth and then into, into to DeFasco's uh, facility. So it would be a 12 inch pipeline. It would be buried underneath the uh, um, barrier within the right, within the right away, buried within the um, underneath the ground. Have you had any feedback yet? I mean, I know you presented to council uh, for those who didn't follow. What was council's response to this? From our perspective, council was very, very engaged um, and asked a lot of really good questions. Um, we did share that the project timeline, we shared the steps that we had to go through, and we did make a commitment to go back to council after we've done some consultation and we refined uh, the route because um, there is a, a couple of different alternatives that we put forward to uh, to get the 
incremental gas down to um, ArcelorMittal Mattel DeFasco. And so we did commit to coming back to council, but they were uh, very engaged in, uh, in the dialogue, in the project, in the timeline. And again, I go back to my first point, because I mean, certainly as you're describing this, this would seem to be something that would be very helpful as we're getting down to our emissions totals and everything else. But you're not I mean, you understand you've heard like everyone else for some people, just the idea of a pipeline is a horrible thing. So how, how do you make that case with the public and with those who would be concerned that this is the way to go? So I think it's a very good question. We'd have to look at the facts, right? And looking at the facts in this project is just seeing the and, and understanding the significant benefit. Um, this would be one of the largest, if not the largest, um, CO2 greenhouse gas emission projects currently in Ontario, um, definitely in Hamilton. So we need to to understand that this project moving forward in this phase will have significant incremental event uh, uh, benefits to uh, to the community and the province when you have the public for now the public uh, consultation is this afternoon correct yes so thank you yes so we do so a project of this nature um, does require for us to put forward and it's called a leave to construct and so we will put an application in front of the ontario energy board and our plan is to have that ready by um, november of this year as part of that process we do have to have um, we have to have a, a public consultation as part of our process so what we have done is plan two in-person information sessions so the first one is tonight at uh, the stony creek lions club from five to eight and then we do have another one march 8th uh, at uh, mount hamilton legion which is on 435 limeridge road east and there is also a virtual open uh, a virtual online uh, uh, session that people can participate in as well so very important part of our process as we look at different alternatives is to uh, have that consultation and provide that public information sessions is i mean look again we, we've said pipelines there's pipelines in a lot of different places but this kind of thing where it's tied to a particular industry does this exist elsewhere have i just missed this do other steel makers or other companies have pipelines you like designated pipelines for them or is this unique i can't speak to that um uh there are numerous other uh, pipeline or sorry, numerous other steel making operations, even in, in Ontario, but uh, um, can't uh, can't give you a specific answer on on different operations can just describe uh, what we are proposing here uh, to help enable this project. And and just before I let you go, um, I understand that if this were to go through that the, the pipeline presumably hopefully would be operational by 2025, that would be the plan. This does sound, though, like it is a large job to do 14 kilometers underground of doing this. When would it when would the work have to begin to be able to be ready by 2025? Yes. So the, what our plan is, and, and I'll go back to where it was a, a second ago, is that uh, is to put an application in front of the Ontario Energy Board in November of this year, hopefully get that response back early, uh, let's say second quarter of 2024, which would enable us to put the construction plans in place, get the materials ready to start early in 2025 and have it operational by the fall of 2025. Wow. So it's, it's, it's only like a half a year or two thirds of a year job. I thought it would be a lot more than that. No, we should be able to complete it throughout wow. that from early 2025 to the fall as far as the pipeline construction itself. 
Uh, Murray, just before we go, tell people once again, because the, the consultations, if people want to be involved, it's this afternoon uh, for today's anyway. Where is today's and what time is today's if they wish to be involved in this? Yes. So thank you. Today's uh, is at Stony Creek Lions Club, which is at 14 Sherwood Park Road, Stony Creek. Um, and it runs from 5 to 8 p.m. That's Murray Costello from Enbridge. I'm Murray, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There is a story that I know, I know that you have been keeping up on because it's just, it's one of those stories that how can you not keep up on it? It's the story out of Oakville of the teacher with the giant... Well, we believe prosthetic breasts that with the students and the board and the it's just such a mess. Well, they had a meeting last night, a school board meeting. And um, let me bring in Sheba Satikwi. She's a producer for Toronto Today, our sister station at 640 a.m. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Sheba was there last night. So let me get this straight from the meeting. The students are upset. The board is upset. The staff is upset. Teachers seem to be upset. Um, who's not upset at this point about this oh, whole story? Everyone is upset, you know, regardless of who was there at the meeting last night. Uh, it went, I mean, it started at 7 p.m. There was a huge lineup at the door. I felt like I was going to a nightclub when I was 22 again because <laughs> there's a long lineup right outside the door in the middle of the snow. And it's just parents, it's educators, it's um, unions, it's all kinds of people. We all had to go in. You all had to show your ID. We have to sign in. We all go sit in the gallery. And the one sentiment that I felt across from Everybody from the board members, from the parents, from anyone who was there representing what they had to say was frustration. I think everyone is so frustrated and I get it. It's month seven, Scott. They're fed up. Nobody thought it was going to go this long. Nobody did. I didn't. You didn't. Nobody saw this coming. And I think they just need to get this resolved. And there's more of an urgency to get this resolved on all sides than ever. Not only did I don't think I think you're absolutely right. I think nobody saw this coming, but I also don't think. They had any idea of how wide this was going to go. The New York Post is sending up photographers to pictures of this person. And this story is this is not at all. I expect what they thought this was going to be. This is an around the world story now. Oh, it's gone absolutely global. And I think that the tipping point was that, I mean, many people have reached out to this teacher, this HDSB teacher, Kayla Lemieux, uh, wanting to speak with her, wanting to hear her side of things. And she actually reached out to Jack Morfitt, who's from the New York Post, had a sit down with him a couple of weeks ago. He flew into Burlington, where she's where she lives. And uh, they had a they had a coffee and they had a chat and he learned so much about her. The irony of it is that he had some photographers also show up a little bit earlier from the time that they're supposed to meet and take pictures of a man that he says is he's a hundred and According to his words, he's 120% sure that that man is also Kayla Lemieux, who was out running errands and they got him on camera. And that she denies it, of course. It's such a messy situation. But the focus that we can't forget, regardless of who Kayla Lemieux is, the focus of the board, the focus of the parents is a professionalism policy. That's why they were there last night. All they're asking for is a very specific dress code policy for teachers across the board. And the board has come forward and implemented a very general policy. Uh, a lot of people feel that it's intentional that it's so vague and it's not getting specific, but that's, that's the matter at hand here. 
Okay, so what I don't understand about this, and it's been going on for a long, long time, is I know the board keeps saying, well, and by the way, the policy that the staff wrote, part of the frustration, as I understand it, was it addresses all kinds of things, but not really a dress code, which was kind of where this whole thing started. At my workplace, at your workplace, I don't know if they have a specific dress code. I, I don't even know at my workplace if they do. But if I were to show up at work wearing a thong, I know that they would tell me, <laughs> you know what? That's not appropriate for our workplace. Go home. And I would have no argument against that. And I just now, I fail to understand how this can't be enforced in some way. Okay. So this is what we've been told, that the board wants to enforce this. That's what they're saying. But they're currently in teacher negotiations. So whenever you're in negotiations with the teachers and the board and the union, you you can't really implement anything until it's signed off on, on sorry, signed off on. So that's what they're saying is the delay. Because of the negotiations, they can't come and be so straightforward and be as specific as they're claiming that they want to be. Now, parents, they're not buying that. No, and, and and it goes back to my point. Even if there's not a specific wording in the document, in the in the negotiation, in the contract that says you cannot have size whatever breasts with nipples showing, to be quite blunt, um, workplaces, every workplace has an expectation of dressing appropriately, and that that to me is the issue here. Why do schools not have the same expectation as seemingly every other workplace in the world? This is a fantastic question that I think everyone is wondering because the students have a dress code. Yes. Yes. Students across any school board, they have a dress code. You know, and, and it's and that's that's an issue for many people, you know, girls wearing spaghetti straps and crop tops. And this these are conversations that come up at board meetings. So why don't the teachers have the same thing? This is a fantastic question. Because you're right. If you show up in a thong, there's going to be an issue at work. And not just with my boss. <laughs> okay, so if the but one of the people and we started this by discussing all the different groups that apparently are upset about this at the board, one of them seems to be teachers are upset by this. So if teachers are upset, why would the teachers then I know you said this is part of their contract. If the teachers surely the teachers could then say, let's get this done. Let's 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 waive our fight against this to make sure this is looked after. Teachers surely could have some say in this. I'm sure that they're voicing their opinions, they're raising their concerns, but honestly, this this specific topic is so divisive and it's such a hot button topic. Even last night, the, I've got young kids at home and I felt at points in this meeting that I was in a kindergarten classroom hmm. simply because uh, the board members are trying to say something and as they're trying to speak or ask their questions or, you know, tell their side of things, you're just hearing in the gallery, people are heckling them, people are making comments, they're yelling things out. There was security everywhere. So security has, they started off the meeting by saying, if, if you are being disruptive, you're going to be asked to leave the meeting. Now, I haven't been to any of the other meetings. This is my first meeting that I've attended on this topic. I've heard that in previous meetings, it's just been complete a complete zoo. So I think from what I'm hearing, people were much better behaved last night, but it it was just interruptions and uh, a lot of just rudeness, disrespect, and the tensions were really, really high. So it's it's something that's, I think it's going to take a lot of time. There's a lot of emotion involved and a, they have a long way to go. That's what I feel. However, keep in mind, this teacher right now is currently on a paid leave. Yes. This is new information. As of yesterday, this teacher is no longer at work. She's on a paid leave and we don't know for how long or what's going to happen from here on in. And you know what? I got to believe that's going to rankle some of the other teachers, too. 
that now you're going to this person gets paid to be at home just because they've created controversy and I have to go to work. And like this, this doesn't get better. It doesn't sound like until someone finally makes a decision and sticks with it and says to heck with it. If you want to sue us, sue us. We'll see you in court and we'll see how this plays out. I don't see this getting better. No, I don't either. And I don't know what the end goal is. I don't know what's going to happen here. I do know that it's it's been seven months and everyone on every side is really frustrated by this. The board isn't giving a lot of answers, really. They were very tight-lipped. They were very careful on what they said. They were very, I'm, I'm sure they've been coached on what you can say, what you can't say. Sure. They're not talking to the, to the media at all. Um, and it's really the teach the parents, the parents that I spoke to last night, they're all feeling very frustrated. Um, we had a trans woman on our show today, Toronto Today with Greg Brady, who was at the meeting last night. She's from Waterloo. Uh, and she firmly believes that this is a, a sexualization in the classroom towards the students. She does not believe this is a transphobic issue at all. These were her words. And she feels that this teacher needs to be removed. We got to run. But one of the really interesting twists in this that could be is the New York Post, again, had these photos taken of this man that was walking around on the streets who they it claims is this person. If it turns out that this is this person, boy, I think that complicates things even more. It really does, because now it's, well, wait a second, what's the... What's the story here? Because it's it, it just it, everything. Every, this is not done. Let's put it that way. This thing is uh, this is the ongoing story that the Halton School Board gets to gets to now enjoy for who knows how long. Uh, uh, Shiba Siddiqui, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. Have a great evening. The federal government and the provinces reached a health care deal where eight point four billion dollars was going to be passed along and. I mean, it was more than that, I believe, over a longer period of time. But nonetheless, it's billions of dollars now that is going to go into healthcare. But one of the considerations is that we will see some changes and more family doctors in Ontario now could begin caring for their patients in teams, not just doctors, but social workers and other healthcare professionals as a result of this deal. This could be a significant change to how we have done healthcare in this province, at least broadly. Dr. Mahele Akumanan is the president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians and a family doctor in Cambridge, joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting idea because there are places already, I know in Hamilton, and I'm, I'm probably just naming one of them, there's the McMaster Family Practice that does team medical family uh, situations where you go in and you don't necessarily have the same doctor. It's a team of doctors. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the kind of thing where you you may, depending on how this goes now, you may not be having the situation where you would have the old school family doctor that you would always see the same person. But the idea here would be that there would be a number of them and you'll see someone, but you may not know who that is. So what, what we would be looking at when we're looking at team-based care in family medicine would be a, a group of family physicians who work alongside a team of other healthcare providers. So that could include nurses, dietitians, social workers, pharmacists, and that whole team of individuals would be working together to provide care to that, that group of patients within those practices. What would be the healthcare, uh, if we're going to do this, presumably there's, it's seen to be better or there's seen to be an advantage. What would be the advantage to this? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it's an incredibly effective way to provide care to patients. And we know ultimately that patients who are able to access care from a team of providers are, are able to access more care from the right person at the right time. And, you know, it, it means that we are then able to increase capacity within our primary care system. We know that we are facing a crisis right now in Ontario with more than 2.2 million patients who don't have a family doctor. And we know that team-based care would be a really good way to address this crisis um, as part of our solution. Is part of this also because not every time, let's say I go to the doctor and whatever the circumstance may be, I don't necessarily need to see the doctor. I could be seen by a social worker or by a nurse practitioner or by an RN or like it's not necessary that I always have to see my doctor. There's ways to move me through the system that lightens the load on those doctors. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. So I have the privilege of working in a family health team in Cambridge. I work at the Two Rivers Family Health Team. And, you know, we all work together and provide care to the patients in our in our practice. And so that means that my patient might see the dietitian, uh, they might see a social worker, they might see our diabetes education team. Um, and then, you know, when they need to see me, they'll see me, but it's really connecting them with the right person um, when they need it. But once upon a time, they probably would have gone to you first and then you would have redirected them to those other people. It's just flipping it around now. Yeah, it's it's everyone working together and ensuring that our patients are able to access the services that they need all under one roof. So they're not then having to navigate a, a, a fairly challenging system um, on their own. It's, you know, kind of a one-stop shop where we all work together and collaborate to to care for our patients. How difficult is it going to be, though, to put this all together? Now, you're in a clinic that has this already. I've pointed to one in Hamilton that has this already. But let's say I am a family doctor who has my my office somewhere. Uh, I may not, I would think, it wouldn't be necessarily easy to pull this all together. Do you expect – well, how do you expect this will work? Will we be seeing more family doctors leaving their office to go to a place where there's now a team? Or how would this work? You know, I think we're we're in a situation where we have inequitable access to teams. So currently, um, there is about seventy five percent of patients who have uh, care from a family physician who don't have access to a team of providers. So really, uh, uh, one way to address that would be to build out teams across Ontario where all patients in Ontario are able to access care from a team of providers. Um, and, you know, sometimes those teams are um, located all in the same setting. Sometimes it would be a matter of a patient perhaps going to a, a different area to access care from another team member. But ultimately, the goal would be to ensure that everyone in Ontario has a family physician who works alongside a team of providers. One more thing. And that is, uh, we'd like to believe, and I do believe that when people come out of medical school right away, they are able to work, that they're trained. They're not, they, they don't lack knowledge. They're doctors when they come out and they're done. But also, if we are able to put them in with a team, with a veteran doctor, does this, again, does this allow us to bring more young doctors into the system with a confidence that there is someone there who's been there and done that to oversee them to make sure that, they, that everyone's getting the right care? 
I, I think there are so many benefits for new graduates to be able to work in a team-based setting. And, you know, I think the number one is that we often train in team-based settings when we're doing our family medicine training. And the current situation is such that when you graduate, we don't see a lot of those opportunities available to us. And so by expanding team-based care, sure, it allows you to work with other physicians and kind of work in that group setting with some mentorship, perhaps. But I think more importantly, it allows us to work with other healthcare professionals where we've been trained in a model like that. Hmm. It's a really interesting topic. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about it. Uh, Dr. Mahale Kumanan, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The ongoing story about China's interference into our elections isn't going away. In fact, it's drip, drip, drip. There just seems to be more and more coming out all the time. First, we heard that China had, thanks to Robert Fife in the Globe and Mail, had in, put money towards certain candidates to get make sure the liberals won at least a minority and beat some conservative candidates. And then we heard, no, that's not the case from the government. And we heard the prime minister say he doesn't know anything about this. And now we've heard that the national security advisor uh, said, well, she, she testified that, well, she actually gave um, – uh, regular briefings to the prime minister on this topic on foreign interference. And then if you ask the question, apparently it's racist to even ask the question now about these kind of things. And today we've got the Trudeau Foundation, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, returning a donation that was given by a link to China. This this whole thing is becoming, first of all, it's almost impossible to keep up with. But Duff Conacher, I want to bring in Duff, who is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, um, as each of these little things comes out, boy, th this story just seems to be snowballing a little bit here on the government and almost, I would think, at some point going to force its hand to say we have to have an inquiry, doesn't it? Well, I don't think uh, we need an inquiry yet. We should let the two House committees, um, one is the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, uh, operates uh, in the open publicly, and the other is the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians, which is all behind closed doors, and uh, let them and let the Commissioner of Canada Elections, uh, Demarcus Swedge, file the complaint with her um, just the other day, and uh, let them all investigate and see if they do their jobs properly, which means they should be fully investigating, getting all the key information out, and issuing public reports uh, with uh, their findings on the facts and also recommendations for key changes. And if they don't do their jobs properly, then yes, let's get a public inquiry going. But a public inquiry has no more power to get information out of the security services or the government uh, than uh, a, a uh, commissioner has. The, the committee has all the same powers and, and so does the commissioner and so would an inquiry commissioner. So since they all have the same powers, let's let the committee and the committees and the commissioner do their job first, at least try to. And I, I look, I applaud you and I appreciate you doing that because, you know, it's funny because you, we say these words. When I was thinking inquiry, right, uh, an inquiry is a technical term. I was actually referring to we need to have some sort of public vetting of this. Those things, as you're describing, if they're done right, would essentially serve the same purpose. So that that's what I was referring to. But thank you for clarifying because they are two different things for sure. Yeah. And also uh, the, the decision to uh, set up an inquiry is uh, unfortunately in the control of the prime minister and the cabinet. We saw that. 
even though there are inquiries usually about uh, wrongdoing involving someone in the government, they, they can choose whether to set one up. They also get to choose the commissioners. Whereas on the committees, there are opposition members who are not chosen by the ruling party or the cabinet. And, and so you actually, I think, get uh, some better questioning and you have some more uh, multi-partisan approaches to things. Whereas Prime Minister Trudeau could choose a commissioner or commissioners who would favor the liberals and that would taint the whole process. Right. And we just saw that. We saw that with the, um, with the trucker protest. Whether or not the commissioner, whether or not Justice Rouleau, whether his, his response or his conclusions were correct, the problem is I think most people – and I talked about this before. Most people who went into that inquiry believing the truckers were on the in the right were going to disbelieve no matter what. And those people who believed the government was in the right were going to go with it whatever as long as it came their way. So yeah, the, the independent thing is really important here. It is. You can't choose your own judge. And, you know, unfortunately, cabinets uh, across the country, the ruling party gets to choose all their own uh, judges and watchdogs on uh, ethics, transparency, lobbying, spending. And it just, it's not the way it should be. They're supposed to be independent watchdogs. And that means they can't have their job handed to them by the people that they watch over. And that is the same when you come to an inquiry. The inquiry commissioner should not be chosen by the uh, person the inquiry commissioner is investigating. Duff, here's a real troubling question I have. So we, we've been having this story trickling down. Well, as I say, Bob Fife from The Globe did a, has done an amazing job and has been breaking this story with these documents from CSIS and everything else. Months ago, when the Parliament Hill, the trucker protest was going on, the inquiry was called and the issue was for the Emergencies Act, the issue was we had to call the, we had to bring the Emergencies Act into play because there was a threat to our democracy. Therefore, we had to take the most urgent action possible that we have at our disposal. Well, here now we have stories, credible reports of a real threat to our democracy. And we're saying, at least the government is saying, eh, it's okay. Leave it alone. It's good. It's fine. We've taken care of it. These are these are two of the same things with two entirely different responses that seem to be entirely politically based. Yeah, the the whole system that was set up in 2019 by the Trudeau liberals uh, liberals to supposedly protect the uh, fairness and integrity of national elections was essentially set up to cover up anything that would make the ruling party liberals look bad. The panel that uh, takes the information from CSIS and RCMP and others uh, and and looks at whether a public announcement should be made about a threat to the integrity, uh, that panel was all chosen by the prime minister and they all serve at the pleasure of the prime minister. The panel had a threshold for disclosing information about threats that meant the threat had to, to threaten the entire national election results. So you could have threats to all sorts of results in all sorts of ridings, and the panel would never consider making a public statement about that. Even if they decided to make a public statement, the rules say there's no deadline uh, or requ- there's no time period in which they're required to make the information public. And so as a result, given it was set up to allow for covering up things for years and years that the uh, would embarrass the ruling party liberals. Not surprisingly, it covered up things that would embarrass the mm. ruling party liberals for years and years. 
And so the whole rule system and and the the panel should be made much more independent, not made up of people who serve at the pleasure of Trudeau. And all the rules should require transparency. As soon as they confirm that there's a threat, then the threat should be made public so the public can uh, then know what's going on. Yeah. You know what, Duff, I wish we had an hour to talk about this because it's a fascinating story that – that just as I say, just more and more things keep coming out that I think raise more and more questions. And now, uh, more and more people saying, you know, is our, is our system being run fairly? And I, and I, I think that may be hyperbole, but if that's the question people are now asking, I think it says something and we got to run, but about how serious this is. Uh, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Love having you on always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much. And of course, we'll be watching whenever inquiry happens mm. and uh, happy to talk again. <laughs> we will for sure. Uh, yeah, it is, it is, um, it, it is a problem. Whether, look, even if you are a staunch liberal, even if you're a staunch liberal, surely there is concern if we're hearing credible reports coming from our security agency that a foreign government, especially one that's got the issues that China does, is tinkering in our election. That is a problem. That is a problem, as it would be if it was the conservatives elected and we heard that Russia, i.e. down in the States, that Russia was helping get people elected. These are things that should not be happening and to blow them off doesn't seem to be the correct response. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It has been, at last count... 45 seconds, I believe, and we have not had an NHL trade. Don't know what's going on. I think maybe the uh, the tallying machine has just broken down. This is not how this works. We're supposed to have a trade at least once every minute, I thought. Ryan Kennedy, a senior writer with the Hockey News. Ryan, how are you today? Pretty good. How's it going? I am doing well. This is, um, I you know, uh, trade deadline day. People always love trade deadline day, but I don't ever remember anything like this leading up to it. No, this has been pretty unprecedented, especially the fact that technically we're not at trade deadline right. yet. It's tomorrow. Uh, it's been really trade deadline week, and I think you know a lot of the uh, the TV shows are, are pretty nervous because <laughs> we've had a whole bunch of superstars already change hands. I, I think tomorrow, as you said, I mean maybe some more tweaks, but I mean all the big names are off the board at this point. Pretty much. Now, if you are a Leaf fan, and I mean, we're talking to a, a market that, you know, many people, most probably hockey fans are probably Leaf fans. I know there's fans of other teams, so you don't have to call and yell at me. I know there are other people out there, but it, a lot of Leaf fans around here. And I got to say, I think two days ago, there was almost euphoria. And then this morning when uh, people saw what the Boston Bruins did, there was this sense of, oh, crap. <laughs> it, re- it is a roller coaster right now. It really is. And, I mean, the Leafs, they are in a very tough division. Um, Boston has been the best team in the league pretty much post to post. Uh, pretty sure they only have eight losses at this point. And, you know, that's if the Leafs get past Tampa Bay, uh, I mean, that, that first-round matchup is pretty much locked in at this point, then most likely it's going to be the Bruins in round two. And they're, they're going to have to find a way to uh, to persevere because, yeah, the Bruins were already really good and then, they uh, they bulked up 
uh, a couple of times, uh, first with uh, Demetri Orloff and Garnet Hathaway, and then with Tyler Bertuzzi today. So it's, they're, they're certainly a tough outfit, but you still got to play the game. I did see a tweet today, and I, I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did, because I'd like to give credit to the person who tweeted it. I don't want to steal their idea, but they, they pointed out a quick question. They had a, asked a quick question, which was, did I miss something? Is there a meteor that's about to hit Earth? Why is it important for every single team to load up this one year? It's bizarre that so many teams are going all in on this one year. Yeah, it, it really is uh, a matter of teams kind of throwing caution to the wind when it comes to the future. And uh, you know, we've seen so many draft picks get moved. And I think what's very interesting is we're seeing draft picks several years out getting dealt. You know, we're used to the ones for, for this year's draft, maybe next year's draft, but we're seeing 2025. It's probably even been a 2026 pick being moved by teams. And, you know, you, you look at sort of the boards of teams like Boston and Toronto, and they're very bare right now. But, you know, Tampa Bay GM Julian Brisebois, uh made a very good point uh, because he gave up five draft picks and, uh, and a player to get Tanner Janot. And he said, look, we're trying to win right now. And even if we draft guys this summer, they're not going to help with that. They're not going to help the next year, maybe even not the next year. But this player could help us right now. So I think what you're seeing is, a number of franchises, pretty much all in the East, saying, look, if you win a Stanley Cup, nobody's going to care about who you draft in the summer. You know, championships live forever. And uh, it, what's interesting is how many teams uh, believe themselves to be right. true contenders. And like I say, pretty much all in the East, you know, Boston, the Rangers, the Devils, the Leafs, um, you know, Tampa Bay making a move and, and already having a pretty stacked lineup. So it it's going to be fascinating because a lot of those teams are going to be eliminated in the first round because they're going to have to play each other. It is. It really is on, on that side. Like watching last night, I watched a bit of the game last night with the Oilers and the Leafs looked completely out of sorts, like they were half of a new lineup, which they really are. It's going to take a little while, I think, to figure it all out. Who knows what they looked like tonight against Calgary. But but I, I couldn't help but think, I mean, Edmonton improved, but they are going to, Edmonton, for example, will have such an easier time getting to the finals than anybody out of the East will. There's there's probably two or maybe three really solid, really good, threatening teams in the West. There's six or seven in the East. I got th- like everyone says, well, the East is going to win the Cup this year. I'm not sure because I think whoever comes out of the East is going to be so worn down after getting there. The West may just be able to come in and go, okay, we're fresh. Here we go. Yeah, it's a very good point. And you know, you look at uh, Dallas is a very strong team. Obviously, Colorado are the defending champs. Uh, as long as Kale McCarr is healthy, then you have to consider them. Um, and then, yeah, Edmonton, you know, sort of filling the holes they needed. Matthias Ekholm uh, on the back end, and then Nick Bugstead getting him today as a, a bottom six forward uh, who could play some defense. So, you know, if the, Ed- if the Oilers get the goaltending they need, then they could make a bit of a run. Uh, but you're right, uh, you know, the teams in the East, um, yes, they'll have easier travel schedules in the playoffs, but it's going to be war. <laughs> Just yeah. getting out of the first round and then that second round, you know, I mean, I haven't even mentioned Carolina, and they're like the second-best team yep. in the uh, in the Eastern Conference this year. So uh, a lot of talent, and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a team in the West won simply because they might be healthier because they only played, you know, sort of, 
five and six game series on route to the final as opposed to a couple of seven rounders. Ryan, just before I let you go, because we're short on time here, let me ask you a theoretical question. Uh, and again, there's a long way that the Leafs would have to get for even this to become an issue. I was not alive for the last time the Leafs won a Stanley Cup final, let alone were in it, because that last time was the same year, 1967. They haven't been to a final since then. What would the Leafs have to do for this year for people to be okay with it? Because I think I'm sure it's got to be more than winning one playoff series. If they got to the finals and lost, is everybody okay with that who's a Leaf fan? Or at that point, are you like, well, this was our chance, and now the team is going to be pulled apart next year and we're screwed? Or, or everyone says, oh, you know what? At least I got to see a finals. How, how does this look for the Leafs fans? Yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, if they got to the final and lost, I think, I think. Yeah, you know, obviously fans would be upset, but I, I think they would say, "Okay, well, you know, they were there, and you know, next year they'll they'll still be in their window, uh, so they can make another run." But I mean, the the bar is basically they got to win the first round because if they don't, then there's going to be serious changes, probably the management level, and then who knows what they do with the roster. But um, yeah, I, I think that if they got to the final, fans would be like, "Okay, well, you know, we haven't been there." in decades, so that was pretty good. <laughs> that was At least it was a, a series. Well, at least we saw a series. With, there are people going in, actually finishing first-year university right now who have never been alive for the Leafs to win a playoff series. We'll leave that thought on the table. Uh, Ryan Kennedy, senior writer with the Hockey News. Thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. What we're talking about now is a ship called the Ironton, which back in 1894 collided with a grain hauler and both sunk. And I guess, and, and my next guest will be able to help with this, I guess there have been searches and, and attempts to find this ship for years. Well, now the Ironton has been found, and not only found, but seems to be in unbelievably, well, as good a condition as a sunken ship probably could be in. Stephanie Gandula is a marine archaeologist and the resource protection coordinator for the NOAA's Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. She joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So uh, tell me a little bit of background on the story because I am not all that – I've not heard of this ship before, probably uh, just my lack of marine knowledge. But is this a a ship that that they have been searching for for years and years or is this something that they came across and then said, oh, yeah, we know about that ship? Well, um, many have been searching for the Ironton uh, in National Marine Sanctuary waters here on the the west side of Lake Huron here in the States. Um, We are in a marine protected area, so 4,300 square miles of Lake Huron, where we were designated to protect all sorts of shipwrecks. And we found many of them. In fact, this makes number 100. Um, So we knew it was out there. and we know that there's at least that many more yet to be found. So, so a, a short answer is that we were looking for the Ironton. Other people were looking for the Ironton, but it wasn't necessarily one of those very famous ships like the Fitzgerald or like the Titanic. Um, what's actually really cool about the story is that it's it was one of thousands of ships that worked the Great Lakes, building um, America's and Canada's uh, uh, amazing countries that we have today. Should I be concerned when you say that they've already found a hundred sunken ships in that area? It seems like it's not an area that's done very well. That seems like a lot of sunken ships. (laughs) 
Yeah, lots of ships. Um, that's a good point. They do estimate that there's about 10,000 uh, ships that have sunk in the Great Lakes. Come on. So there's, I know, there's lots of them out there. But if you think about it, the, the economy, and you guys, where you're at in Hamilton area, I mean, you know about the Great Lakes. Um, think of the economy the global economy uh, that is that functions in and around the Great Lakes. So there's shipping out there all the time. It's just that when we look out and see one impressive Great Lakes freighter, uh, 150 years ago, what they're hauling would have taken 200 schooner barges to haul. So it was historically a very important economic um, place, uh, a lot of industry, and it still is today. It just doesn't quite look as busy. Well, not 10,000 is uh, that I mean that's an astonishing number to think that that many ships could be at the bottom of the Great Lakes, but okay, I, I, that's I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm speechless by that. That number just seems incredible. Now, when when I saw the photo and a little bit of video of the Ironton that they had found, uh, it is amazing how good the shape of this ship seems to be. Is this typical of ships that we find at the bottom of the Great Lakes or is this really unique? You know, actually, it is, I don't want to call this a typical wreck because it is an amazing find. Um, but with the cold, fresh water that we have here in the Great Lakes, this kind of preservation is possible. And these deeper wrecks, a lot of them look like that. A lot of them have their masts still, the wooden masts still standing upright, uh, 30, excuse me, 90 feet in the in the water column. Uh, so the preservation here is amazing. In fact, people come from all over the world to dive these very well-preserved shipwrecks. Sure. And, and a lot of people from certainly from this area, one example, a lot of people will go up to Tobermory area and mm -hmm. uh, and do there where they were in the Fathom five area where they can do that. How deep you said at the down deep, how deep was this ship found? Um, it's, it's, we say right now we're saying it's hundreds of feet deep. Um, we're in partnership with the state and with the um, NOAA, with the, the federal government, and not yet releasing the exact depth or coordinates until a little more thorough documentation is done. But in the coming months, uh, that info will be released. But it, it's pretty darn deep, we'll say that. Okay, so what, what do you do with this now? Because we here in the Hamilton area, a number of years ago, I don't even know how long, 25 years ago now, uh, they discovered two ships, the Hamilton and the Scourge, which um, were in pretty good mm -hmm. shape uh, that had sunk off Hamilton. And I know that there was a time, and my memory may be a little fuzzy, but that they had investigated, could we raise these and put them in a museum or something? Is this a possibility or does it always now, just we, we say the bottom of the lake is the museum now? Oh, you, I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly what I was going to say. The, because they're preserved so well and have been for uh, hundreds of years at the bottom of the lake, it is the best place to leave them. When you uh, excavate and um, haul up artifacts like that, you, you need to have, it costs a lot of money, first of all, to even do that. And then it costs a lot of money to keep them properly conserved for forever, which is really what you, you know, should be doing. And so, especially with the technology that can bring these shipwreck stories to the surface without literally bringing them mm. to the surface with that video and those, those imagery. And we can make uh, photo models and then 3d print, you know, shipwrecks. There's, there's really no need to remove it from where they're so well-preserved. Stephanie, we got to go in a second here, but w what is the state okay. of the technology now? Do we need to have still ships like with Robert Ballard finding the Titanic? Do we need to still have ships that are out there searching and dragging the lakes to find these things or is there any kind of technology that's moving to the point where we could run drones or something and see oh. feedback that would bounce off the bottom that we could just find all these 10,000 ships at some point? 
Well, that's our goal. Um, we've surveyed, and that, that's how we do it. No, no more dragging of the lakes. <laughs> that's not The fish don't like that. Um, but we do use sonar. So um, the, the way this was found was with multi-beam sonar, sending out many, many sound waves and how those come back. Tell us what it looks like on the lake bottom. And we're going to be finding more shipwrecks. So stay tuned for mm. sure. Stephanie Gandula, the Marine Archaeologist and Resource Protection Coordinator for the NOAA's Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was wonderful to be on. It's uh, it's it's a fascinating story. These all these different finds, and especially as I say, if you go look it up, if you're looking up the name, so you can see the photo online. Uh, it's the Ironton, Iron I R O N Ton T O N, kind of you know, not a ton of iron, but the Iron Ton, easy way to remember it. And it is amazing with the cold water and the fresh water and everything that it is. Let's see, eighteen ninety four. So we're talking about you know a hundred and thirty basically years ago. It's amazing how well-preserved this is. And you wonder how many more, 10,000 ships. That, that, I'm, I'm not doubting her. I'm not doubting Stephanie, but 10,000 ships at the bottom of the Great Lakes? How bad were the captains? <laughs> I mean, let's not, they're not alive to answer the question. 10,000 shipwrecks? I think at some point, somebody's probably saying when their kid says, I want to be in sailing. Mom and dad go, yeah, I don't think so. Let's go into something a lot safer like catching arrows with your teeth. <laughs> Anything. Let's go into something safer like test pilot for various unknown vaccines. Anything but sailing on the Great Lakes. That seems to be a bad idea based on this. I don't know if you know this, but it is budget season. It's tax season. Soon you will be finding out what the tax increase is that you'll be paying to be a resident of the city of Hamilton. It happens every year at this time. This is not something new. Uh, last year, Hamilton City Council raised our taxes by 2.8%. The year before, in 2021, 1.9%. Right now, according to Finance General Manager Mike Zagarek, um, looking at some number close to 6.8%. Almost, almost three times what we had last year and almost four times, getting close to four times what we paid the year before. Now, there are certainly some challenges. Inflation is a challenge. There are other things going on. But how is this playing around the council table? Are all the councillors on board with a tax in, with presenting a tax increase like this and telling people in town that they should be expecting this amount? I think the answer probably is no. And I think my next guest, maybe, if I understand correctly, one of those who may be the one, one of the people who is fighting against this, Matt Francis, Ward 5 City Councilor, a freshman on council this year, joins us now. Matt, thanks for doing this today. Yes, thank you, Scott, for having me on the show. How are you doing today? Uh, look, I'm doing great until I look at a 6.8, 6.7% tax increase and I swallow hard a little bit, and I'm sure a lot of other people do too. And I'm guessing there are some counselors who are doing that as well when they have to present this to the people. Uh, I'm one of those counselors. I, I look at this 6.7, 6.8% increase that's uh, coming before us on March 29th for council ratification, and, and uh, I'm uh, 100% opposed to this. I will not be supporting this. Um, it's it's way too high. Um, you know, I, I've heard people tell me this is a tax and spend council, and I'm not going to be a part of it. Uh, I want to save the taxpayer money. That's my goal. I will not be supporting this budget on March 29th, at council ratification. And, and um, you know, it's concerning because I know you just mentioned inflation, but yesterday our, our, our general manager, Mike Zagarek, stood there and said to us, um, 
this is not an inflationary budget. So I'm very concerned um, about uh, future years. What's 2024 going to look like if this is not an inflationary budget? And if you break it down, um, 2.5% of this budget is council-referred items. What does that mean? So that means it's, it's items that councillors have, have tacked on to the, the levy. So in essence, if you, if you subtract that from the 6.7, you're at 4.2. The 4.2 the is not something we have a ton of control over, but the, the 2.5 that's presented in front of us, we have quite a bit of control over. Um, and it just seems like, you know, there's the appetite in the room to go forward to, to push this forward. And, and I'm, I'm not in support. And, and I've, I've, I've maintained that for this long budget process that started basically on day one of the job. And um, I've, I've tried finding solutions and uh, standing up for the, for the taxpayer, the hardworking taxpayer in Hamilton. What about, you say finding solutions, what about finding kindred spirits? Do you get the sense that there are others on council who share your view? Um, I, I definitely do. There's, there's. I mean, you, you heard it uh, yesterday, yesterday's uh, GIC budget meeting. Um, I know 6.7% is not acceptable. Um, I can't speak for, for my colleagues, but I you definitely got that sense in the room that 6.7% is, is not acceptable. And, um, you know, I, I, I continue to hear these bold terms, like people saying these words, bold and ambitious. We need to be bold. We need to be ambitious. When I hear that, I hear tax increases. Um, there's nothing bold or ambitious about raising taxes on seniors and people on fixed incomes, people on disability. Um, people are struggling to get by in the city and residents ability uh, to pay for for the 6.7 percent increase is different than in Burlington and different in Toronto so richer municipalities um, I'm, I'm very concerned about this and uh, this you know this is why I'm not going to support it on on March 29th Matt you mentioned about 2024 that this was not an inflation budget according to Mike Zagarek. Uh help me out here because I know that at on December 31st that we just passed, all or almost all the union contracts for city workers expired. Have those negotiations wrapped up or will those increases, and I expect they will be substantial increases, will those get tacked on to this year's or next year's budget? Uh, so those are discussions that uh, will be taking place shortly. So so that'll be um, 2024, any increases to staff money? Well, there's always going to be increases to staff money, but I mean, in terms of what we can control, what I'm, you know, Focusing in on here is a 2.5 percent um, of the council referred items. I mean, if you look at if you break that down um, in itself, the 2.5 percent of just council referred items is larger than the total levy from previous most of the previous years. If you go back, I mean, you're just saying 1.9 percent a couple of years ago. Um, that's larger than uh, than it, our overall um, levy hit as it is. So. Um, you know, this is, uh, I'm very concerned about this. I, I think we could have done way better. I'm, I'm very disappointed. Is there anything, um, sort of jump in, is there anything that could be done now? Because you've got a vote coming up on the 29th. I assume that you have to vote on a budget by that date. You have to be able to put something in play. Is there time at this point to make any changes or push back or even hack away at some things to try and bring that number down? Or are we kind of now figuring we're locked in here? Well, unless there's nine other or sorry, eight other councillors that uh, agree with me um, on, on March 29th, it, this is going to go forward. So um, unless I've got eight other colleagues that are they're willing to step up and, and say, no, this is unacceptable. 
Um, but, you know, I, I got to tell you, when I was on the campaign trail, um, I knocked on 10,000 doors. I spoke to a lot of people. And the top two things that I heard consistently over and over and over again, my taxes are too high. That was number one. That was, It was clear and obvious. That was number one. My taxes are too high. And number two, we need more police. So those are the the police budget. I'm willing to support that. At, my residents, you know, the residents in, in Ward 5 on, on Lake Avenue, for example, they, they, that are afraid to have their kids playing on the, out on the front yard um, because we don't have the proper police resources to enforce speed. I mean, this is, you know, I, I have to support the police budget and um, uh, this tax, this, uh, you know, going door to door and, and hearing from people. I actually had uh, one lady tell me, um, Matt, I, I'm doing my laundry at nighttime. I have to do my laundry at nighttime to save a few bucks. Um, what do you think that this is going to do to an average, uh, the average home that's assessed at $380,000? Um, what do you think that's going to do to this, you, you know, to seniors on yeah. No, that's they're, they're struggling to get by as it is. That's an issue. And I got, we got to run here, but I just want to point out that right before the election, there was a poll done about Hamilton politics and about the election by Main Street Research. And it asked people what their leading issues were in the election. Number one was housing. And I certainly understand why that would have been a number one issue for people in the city. Number two, one in four people said decreasing taxes. And somehow... The new council has heard the part about housing because they're taking that very seriously. They've ignored, it seems, number two and are blasting through with more taxes. I don't, I don't understand. I, I'm with you on this one. I don't understand how it is that there doesn't seem to be more concern about how people are going to pay for stuff. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, Matt Francis, love uh, chatting. Thanks for calling. Thanks for doing this. And we'll, uh, we'll be talking about this again. I am absolutely sure. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. That is Ward 5 Councillor Matt Francis. He is uh, one of the new councillors facing an uphill battle, it seems. Some of you listening may be totally fine with this. We need these services. And yes, you know what? Services are great. Do we need them right away? Do we need them now? Do we need them at the cost where we couldn't trim other services to keep – it just – it seems as though too often – personal opinion, too often – We have politicians who are happy to spend other people's money, even though those other people are really struggling right now. This seems like one of those times. This is probably news to a lot of us, but there are apparently millions of Canadians who suffer with some kind of rare disease. I didn't think the number would be that high, but apparently it is the case. And a new Ipsos poll, a new Ipsos survey has found that Many of those, and maybe many others as well, I don't know, but certainly many of those don't don't exactly believe they are being set up for success in getting great treatment for this. I want to bring in uh, Grace Tong, who's the Vice President and Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Practice Lead with Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Just had about this for a second. In a second, I'm going to bring in Steve Parrott, who has two adult daughters with VHL disease. We'll get to that in just a second. But Grace, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for inviting us to uh, to speak here. As I look at the, some of the numbers from this study, um, four out of five, and there's lots of numbers and we can't get into all of them, but this one really jumps out. Four out of five people who were surveyed by your organization don't believe that family physicians are aware and informed about rare diseases. That's That's a little frightening if you go to a doctor and you don't have confidence that that person is going to know either what you have, how to diagnose it, or where to send you. 
Yeah, it is. It is quite concerning. And, you know, rare diseases are simply that they're rare. Um, so, you know, without center, without expertise, it is difficult for GPs to recognize the symptoms, which, you know, oftentimes a GP may not even encounter a patient with that rare disease ever. Right. So it's not surprising, I think, that 80% of GPs uh, may not be aware let me bring in Steve for a second here. Steve has two adult daughters, as I say, with VHL disease. Now, Steve, just because I think there's probably an awful lot of people to this very point who don't know what VHL disease is. What is VHL disease? VHL, first of all, thanks very much for having us. Uh, VHL disease is von Hippel-Lindau disease, which is a genetic disease, uh, cancer. Uh, it, it means that tumors can grow in 10 different parts of the body, including the brain, eyes, spine, and kidneys. Uh, so we have to monitor for those types of tumors. Mm. It's a genetic disorder, so uh, it uh, can affect many in the family. So I have two daughters, and both of them have it. Now, okay, so I've not heard of this before. That's my fault for not having heard of it before, but I, I, I don't know that I would have been expected to have heard of it necessarily, but certainly a doctor that you go to when you have symptoms, you would like to believe that the doctor would know this. When you went to your doctor and your daughters were either tested or had some symptoms of something, did they know what it was? No, no. And I was just speaking to my GP about it uh, recently, and he didn't know about it. Uh, I don't know that really we can expect them to know about it. You know, there's 7,000 rare diseases. And wow. VHL, for example, there's only 1,000 that have it across Canada. So I'm not sure that it's really viable that we expect them to know everything about COVID and all the latest issues that we're dealing with medically and all these rare diseases. That's why we need a rare disease strategy. And we need rare disease centers of excellence because we just have to concentrate our efforts in, in certain sectors or sorry, certain locations so that we can then uh, share that information with GPs when they need to um, support patients after diagnosis and sure. after surgeries and so forth. Sure. I think that's by far the most efficient way to, to deal with it. Grace, your, your survey found, here's another number that really jumped off the page. Your survey said uh, the respondents who I'm assuming are people who have had some sort of rare diagnosis waited an average of 3.7 years to get an average diagnosis. I can only imagine that if you have either pain or if you have something that's moving along, 3.7 years is an awfully long time to not know what you're dealing with. Yeah, the, so the respondents to our survey uh, were either patients with rare diseases or or their caregivers. Okay. Um, and that was the average 3.7 years, definitely to get an accurate diagnosis. And uh, a lot of the interviewees that we spoke to spoke of the, the mental toll it took the toll on mental health it took um, during that time, you know, go through all those incorrect diagnoses and seeing all these different healthcare professionals over time. Steve, let's go back to you just for a second. We're, we're short on time and I wish we had a lot more, but I appreciate you guys doing this. Um, you mentioned, and I think it's a really valid and honest point from your part, really, that uh, it's probably not reasonable for every doctor to know about every single disease. And, and that's, that's, you know, being kind to the doctors because I don't know how they could. How would a center for excellence or a center for rare disease do better? 
because you're still going to have to have somebody there who's going to recognize this. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, so in BC, for example, they have a VHL clinic and in it's located in downtown uh, Vancouver. And so patients can go there for initial diagnosis and then they can go back home and the doctors in Vancouver can communicate with doctors that are, you know, in Chilliwack or wherever uh, and help that GP help the patient so that it can be uh, timed to align with what needs to be done. And so that way it can be more efficient. So you, you center all the excellence in one location and then support the uh the outlying areas. It is, uh, it's certainly a story that I, I know we're going to be talking about because, I mean, if, if the numbers of people that you're both referring to have rare diseases, it's going to affect so many people across this country that more and more are going to be wanting something to be done about this. Uh, Steve Parrott, uh, Grace Tong, thank you both for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is our time today. I wish we could keep going, but uh, alas, we can't. Got to go home and prepare for the storm. Bulk up on sand or salt or foodstuffs for the cellar. Storms are coming, apparently. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. And maybe the storm will have been a coming by the time we get here. I'll be here at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Thank you to Will for keeping us on the air, for Liz for lining everything up, to our great guests, including Steve and Grace, who were just on. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Really appreciate it. We will talk to you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. I'm in here one more day for Scott Thompson. We will talk to you one more day at 3. As the storm approaches, we'll keep you updated on everything. Have a great night. We'll talk to you then. 